started. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, Megan's going to give a little intro of the night. Um, so thank you again for coming. We're so happy that everybody's joining us for our first panel discussion. We have a great lineup tonight, these wonderful women. Um, we just wanted to thank uh, Veronica for hosting tonight. She is Woo! the owner of <laughs> She will be around with her associate, Nicole, after. If you guys have any questions, you are more than welcome to ask away. Uh, we also just want to give a shout out to Fancy Catering, who's provided the lovely platters and cookies, La Croix for the great refreshments, Ooh. and PC Water. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna hand it over to Shayna. She's gonna talk a little bit about the fundraising. Yeah. A couple more thank yous. Um, Sola Products, they've got our raffle prizes at the door, um, which we'll be announcing at the end. Um, also, for the first 10 uh, purchases through the Nookie tonight, we'll get a gift with purchase, which is a tiny travel size bullet vibrator. And to our amazing audio team, Toronto Sound, um, for recording um, tonight, which will be, um, it's all being recorded tonight for Rebecca's podcast, uh, Sex Ed Before Bed. So that'll be launching um, shortly after tonight's event. Um, I want to thank you guys also for being here. Uh, for me, as uh, this is a fundraising event for uh, my Ride to Conquer Cancer in June. Um, all the proceeds from tonight are going towards the Princess Margaret um, Center for Cancer. And I just did a tally. You guys have brought me to uh, $2,000 of my $2,500 goal. <laughs> I appreciate it, and everybody who's sort of had cancer affecting their life, I'm sure, appreciates it from the bottom of their heart. So uh, um, I will not be with you guys tonight, but um, yeah, I hope that uh, you guys learned something tonight, and I think it's going to be a really great learning uh, experience. Sweet, let's get this night started. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Okay. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Rebecca Nava, and I'm the host of Sex Ed Before Bed, a podcast about sexual politics from a Canadian context. And I'm a sexual health educator, and I was educated in um, options for sexual health in BC. I'm super stoked to be here. Um, with these uh, five panelists. So they all have different perspectives. And really here, we're like, myth, we're myth busting. And uh, myths can have a lot of power over us. Um, so I just wanna sort of say, you know, I'm really grateful that you guys came out to challenge things that you believe um, because myths can have a lot of power over us. So good for you for coming to, with your curiosity and with uh, a curiosity to question things that you hold true, may hold true. So, without further ado, I'd like uh, each one, each one of our panelists, to say a little bit about themselves. Oh me, okay. Um, <laughs> hi, uh, my name's Ducky. I am from New York, and uh, I'm a, a pleasure-based sex educator. I'm a, also a certified sexual assault and violence intervention counselor, uh, as a first responder for adult and pediatric cases. Um, today I'm working in the pleasure product industry as a, as a part of meetsola.com. And, um, yeah, I like to bust everything, including myths. <laughs> <laughs> Hi everyone. My name is Claire and I am a matchmaker and a sex and relationship coach. I also, uh, am a three-time stroke survivor. So I do a lot of, uh, outreach and speaking and uh, academic work about uh, sex and disability and relationships and disability. 
And yeah, I do all sorts of other things. I host a sexy storytelling night in Toronto called Tell Me Something Good at Glad Day. And I also have a podcast about intersectional dating called A Date With. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, hi, my name is Allison. I am a registered nurse. Uh, I've been a registered nurse for nine years and I spent um, every year of that, at least for a little bit, working in sexual health in some way. I worked at the Bay Center for birth control for six years. So doing a lot of abortion counseling as well as general sexual health and um, contraception counseling, and then moved into the Sexual Assault Domestic Violence Care Center, which services the entire Toronto Lynn for forensic and medical care after a man, woman, trans person husband has been uh, sexually assaulted or is a experienced sorry, <laughs> or has experienced uh, intimate partner violence. Um, I am also in the process, I uh, don't really know why, of trying to get my nurse practitioner degree and my master's all at the same time, um, with a hope of eventually working with marginalized youth, probably in sexual health, because I end, to get, end up getting in conversations with it, about it all of the time. Thank you. Hold this mic properly. <laughs> um, so my name is Shreya, and uh, so I work as a community-based researcher as well as a sexual health promoter in Toronto. I work at ASAP, which is the Alliance for South Asian AIDS Prevention, and we offer uh, a lot of HIV AIDS support services for Indo-Caribbean, uh, Middle Eastern, and South Asian folks. Uh, I also work at Nuance, which is a digital magazine uh, for immigrant youth, and we speak about essentially all the intersections that come with sexual health, uh, sexuality migration, sexual orientation, desire, all of those things. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really excited to, to be here today. Cool. Hi, my name's Veronica. So I am a social psychologist by training. I worked in healthcare administration for about eight years. Um, and then I sold a home, packed up, moved across the country and opened a sex shop, um, which a lot of people think is crazy and really wonder why I would choose to do it. Um, and tonight is a really great example of why I would choose to do it. So it's great to see so many people coming out. Um, I realize that for some people, this might even be your first time in a sex shop. You might have actually had to work up some courage to even walk in the door. Um, so I think it's great that you're here. I think it is an act of courage. And I think it's a bit of an act of a rebellion. It's a bit of a kind of fuck you to the system in a sex shop with people like talking about stuff that you're not supposed to talk about. Um, so congratulations to all of you for showing up and thank you for being here. Um, and thank you for letting me share my space with you. Absolutely. All right. So let's get it started, shall we? <laughs> Sorry, am I allowed to swear? Are swears allowed? Yeah, fuck <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so we're here to talk about sexual health. So I'm so curious as to how all of you define sexual health. Should we just start with you? How's the mic over here? Um, I would define sexual health, um, I think more from a system perspective than an individual perspective, because it's sexuality is such an individual thing, but from kind of a large societal perspective, I would just define it as um, shame-free pleasure and exploration, um, community support, medical support where you need it, um, and having resources available to even learn how to have a conversation or a dialogue about your desires. I don't even think we have a language for sex right now socially. Um, so to me, sexual health is just working towards acceptance and comfort with having a language to talk about sex. Yeah, I think um, I think I echo a lot of that, uh, especially with so my background is in uh, is in the sciences, but I also uh, really take a public health perspective in the work that I do in in HIV/AIDS, and so what we find. Um, 
in our work is, is really that a social determinants of health perspective needs to be there for, for sexual health. Um, that often people think of sexual health as, uh, unfortunately in really stigmatizing ways, a lot of the prevention work around STIs and HIV is, is done in stigmatizing ways, which is really sad. Um, so a lot of the work that, that I do and that my colleagues do is really, uh, it really revolving around, it really revolves around, um, you know, just information based, uh, work as well as like supporting people's autonomous decisions, um, no matter what that decision really is, uh, and really trying to encourage like shame-free, stigma-free, uh, decision-making around, uh, people's bodies. And of course, even though like our work is very, uh, direct impact and, you know, deals with individuals, it's, it's informed by so much of what people have internalized through uh, social messaging. So I think for, for me and in the work that I do, I think really sexual health is part of broader health uh, conversations around um, creating like a, a real shame-free culture around uh, desire, consent, uh, and understanding one another on that level. Thank you. Um, I tend to take a medical aspect of it fairly obviously. Um, so I, I tend to think of sexual health and healthy sexuality as um, not just sort of like what's going on down there or what's not going on down there, but also actually talking about it. So being able to name the parts of one's body without giggling, without, you know, going penis, something like that. So um, having the comfort to talk about your vagina, your penis, the same way you would talk about your arm and your elbow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I concur with all of this. The only thing that I would add, and I think it's already been said in other ways, is just that it should be uh, lifelong and something that people can opt into. And that doesn't necessarily have to go hand in hand with sex positivity, but can meet people where they're at. Well, they're obviously very learned academics. And I'm just a kid from the streets who... <laughs> likes a lot of sex. Um, no, but uh, honestly, I, uh, I think that it's about empowerment and it's a process. So kind of what you were speaking to where you learn things and you grow a little bit and then you plummet sometimes it's like self-esteem goes up and goes down. And so I think that sexual health is something you visit and revisit throughout the course of your life and your life cycles. And, uh, I don't really have a, a, a definition that is, um, that it, like I said, I'm not an academic and I actually like that about myself because we, we have strong academics in the world and I like being a kid from the street who says fucking a lot and says <laughs> I'm strong and I'm proud and I own this body and it's mine and I will live by example. Cheers to that. So, yeah. 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 You're here. <laughs> um, I think that was pretty nice. Pretty good uh, rundown. On <laughs> Thank you for that. So now I kind of want to talk about myths and some of the myths that we all have myths about sex. And so I wanted to sort of share one of my own myths that I had growing up. So growing up and watching uh, sex scenes on TV or in movies, um, usually vaginal sex and uh, watching women come from vaginal sex without any clitoral stimulation. Um, for me, I thought like, oh, like, is this how it's supposed to be? And, uh, and I kind of just, when I started like in my own life, I was like, oh, well, this doesn't actually reflect my experience. So feeling some shame about that. So that was a huge myth for me was that that's a, a, the main way that women come. So we'd love to hear some of your myths. 
Um, I might be showing my age, but it was also one of the ones on one of the original Degrassi's. Um, that you can't, <laughs> the one without Drake. Uh, that, you can't, <laughs> that you can't you can't get pregnant if it's your first time, which is absolutely a myth. And then there's other ones that I remember growing up hearing when I was in high school that you can't get pregnant if you're on your period. Um, and then one that actually has come up in some of my work when I was at Bay Center was that you can't get pregnant if you're breastfeeding. So a lot of these ideas, um, certainly the last two that has so tied with your period and it, the two, the two systems are quite tied together, your ovulation and your menstruation system, but one can happen without the other. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I kind of have like, sorry, I kind of have like a culturally specific myth and I don't know if many in the room would have, would have grown up with this, but so growing up, I was taught from my mom, uh, that bras with underwire are like terrible for you and that they will (laughs) cause cancer or that you will die. Like seriously, I'm 100% serious. So during my formative years, uh, where things were forming, um, <laughs> I wore these, like these cotton bras that were like sourced from, from like India. Like, you know, it was like a hundred for 10 rupees. Don't quote me on that. It's like some, some kind of number like that. But I remember in like the girls change room, you know, everyone would, would have these, like these bras with underwire, but I didn't even really understand. I just knew that their breasts looked perfect. And mine looked pointy. And so if you want to know what that means, you should, you should just YouTube clips of like Madhuri Dixit or like basically like, I don't know, nineties Bollywood. And you will see what I mean, where basically they just look a little bit different. Um, and I think, so the idea was at least from my mom's perspective was that these cotton bras were really useful for like a really hot climate. And when you're wearing a sari blouse, uh, it holds everything together quite nicely actually. And it makes sense for that wear, but I got stuck with basically these cotton bras, no sari blouse. <laughs> so yeah, so that was my experience growing up. And I thought underwire would kill me until I was a little bit older. Oh, hey, yeah. That's a new one. That's a new one. It's <laughs> really cute. <laughs> Haven't heard that one before. <laughs> so my myth is one that is remains pervasive and definitely impacted me for longer than I would like. Um, so some of my background is I also for a very long time worked in uh, feminist porn as the vice president of a company that focused on uh, oral sex. And um, I really still sometimes, even in like the work I do in sex education, have to remind myself that this isn't true, that oral sex or, you know, digital penetration or mutual masturbation or any of that isn't real sex and that real sex is only a penetrative act. Mm -hmm. So that is problematic and that is homophobic and that is transphobic and that is not conducive to pleasure. But that is, I think, a myth that I dealt with for a long time that really caused internalized homophobia for me. And yeah, Yeah, it was a hard one to shake. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. Um, I think, uh, again, I tend to speak from personal experience because I feel like that's the only kind of expert that I that I am. And then hopefully you find nuggets that that fit your life in some way. But um, I was a poverty based sex worker and um, was told that I should be ashamed of myself as a young person. And the funny thing was I didn't do anything that crossed my personal boundaries. And then when I left sex work, I spent four years of not really explaining to anybody where I, what I had done for a living and waited for the shame to kick in. You know, they said, I'd like never be a politician 
there's all these things, the lists of things they said I couldn't do as a, as a sex worker or former sex worker. I don't even want to be a fucking politician. So uh, to me, I was like, why does this, why is that a value? I don't understand the equation. So I waited and then the shame never kicked in. And then I was like, oh wait, that's their shame. Not mine. Yeah. Um, and so shame is something that I do not accept. Uh, I won't, you know, the, the, the myth that the number of partners you've had or the lack of partners that you haven't had equates value or the amount of money you have or the amount of money you don't have equates value of the human soul. It's, it's total bullshit. Absolutely. Thank you. Here, here. That is a tough one to follow. <laughs> so we're all friends here. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, sh- I'll share when I learned how to masturbate. So when I was very young, my very best friend came over one day. She's like, I learned this thing and it feels really good. Do you want to see? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so she like, when we were young, she taught me how to masturbate. So we would do it like all the time. Like it's what we did together. Like, <laughs> we played Barbies for a while. And we'd be like, want to touch ourselves? We're like, yeah, let's touch ourselves. So her dad was a doctor. And he caught us one time and he told, well, no, I'm like, whatever. Um, We were like, when I say young, I mean young, we were like four, like we didn't even know to have shame yet. Um, And so he told us that if we continued to touch ourselves, we wouldn't be able to have babies when we grew up. Um, And they like, they hammered this point home because they kept catching us. And I like, (laughs) (laughs) I made the conscious decision. I'm like, if I have to choose between babies and masturbation, like I choose masturbation. Done and done. So that was my first sex myth. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> very cute. Yeah. <laughs> so our first myth that we're going to kind of uh, be addressing today is sex is only good if you have an orgasm. Discuss. <laughs> uh, no. Um, I, <laughs> Obviously, it's something to reach for, and I feel like um, as women, we have let partners off the hook in a lot of ways by saying it's okay, it's not about the orgasm, when really a reason why a lot of heterosexual women aren't orgasming is because people just aren't giving them enough attention um, to their clit, they're not stimulating enough, there's not enough foreplay, they're not using lube, these are all the reasons why a lot of women aren't orgasming. Um, so I, I hate to kind of perpetuate that as being acceptable, but it is. Um, I mean, there's some people that are going to have disabilities. There's people that are going to have variations in sex drive because of medications or health conditions, and they just might not get into sex enough to orgasm. But there's still a really nice intimacy to being touched by somebody and letting somebody explore your body. Um, it doesn't need to be penetrative. I mean, you might be going through some sort of condition where penetration is just not an option. Even having somebody touch your genitals is not an option for you, Um, but you can still have a really intimate sexual-esque encounter that involves touch that isn't a genitals um, that can be just as rewarding or, frankly, in some cases, like if you've ever had a partner for a long time and you've actually just tried not having sex for a month or two and doing everything else, like when you do have sex, it's insane because you've built up so much intimacy, so much tension. So I think there's a lot of value in not having sex that will lead to orgasms. Um, but I also think women need to start taking ownership and saying, you know what? I didn't come yet. You don't penetrate me until I do. And just like making that the household rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well said. Um, I think I, I echo a lot of that and, and not just for, for women in general, but for many marginalized people. Um, so whether, you know, yes, certainly women, women of color, but also a lot of, uh, gay men or GBT men of color also experience, I think a lot of marginalized people 
people experience a particular pressure to please their partner in order to have any kind of intimacy or sexual uh, connection at all. And I think that that is like a systemic problem that, yeah, we all need to address. We all need to think about how we have internalized notions of desire or respect or what we can demand or ask for or what we feel compelled to give in sexual encounters. Um, But at the same time for me, yeah, I don't think an orgasm is necessary or is the point of sex. I think a lot of sexual intimacy, and I brought this up earlier, that it's it's also um, something about connecting with people that we we don't really talk about enough, but how it's it's essentially for me nowadays, it's like, if there is a balance, if there is an equity there that I feel with the other person, like if we're both doing enough for each other and it feels equal, like that's what I look for nowadays rather than really looking for like an orgasm or like a, like, okay, you're going to touch my clit and then I'm going to touch like your ear. Like, I don't know, (laughs) you know, like it's not like a, like a tit for tat. It's more like, it's more like how, how are we meeting as people in this moment? Um, and like really checking in like before, during and after helps a lot with that. Um, yeah, I think that's where I stand. Thanks for that. Um, don't really know if I have a ton to add to that. I feel like um, Veronica spoke a lot about like the idea of emotional connection in sex and it's not necessarily just pleasure based. Maybe it is sometimes. And then, um, but there's a lot more that you can get from it from an emotional side. Um, and I just kept getting tripped up with the idea of like, quote unquote, only good. Mm. Like it's like sex is ice cream and orgasms are chocolate syrup. And like, it's <laughs> awesome to have both, but sometimes, you know okay to not or it's okay to just have like an entire thing of chocolate syrup too yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think uh sex to me is it's it's so far beyond penetration and somebody else mentioned that earlier it's so far beyond any single act or single body part or single experience and so uh the idea that that uh, orgasm could be the center of sex is almost like alien concept Mm -hmm. to me at this point in my life. But uh, to me, sex is anticipation. It's I'm going to spank you. Will it ever happen or not? I don't know. But some people (laughs) in the room just got a thrill. (laughs) You know, that's it. That's anticipation because, and that's sex to me. It's a dirty, it's a dirty text. It's the panties you put on or the underwear you put on. If you wear, if you have ugly panties, like, fuck you, you're wasting your life away. Like, what are you doing? I am not, and, and beautiful to you is you, by your definition. And I'm talking to everybody in the room. I want the first thing that you put on in the day to make you feel good, whether you're with a partner or not, that's really an essential thing is it's a feeling. It's not a thing. And that's what sex is. It's a feeling. It's not a thing, an act, a body part. And so, you know, I hope that resonates. Um, kind of, uh, going a bit off of what Veronica said, my personal experience with stroke is that, uh, half of my body is numb and I am straight up down the middle, like a black and white cookie. If you've had one of those delicious black uh, chocolate and vanilla and sensation, no sensation. So for me, um, I, there was a period of time before I was able to masturbate, before I was able to, uh, have sex with my partner. And I didn't know if I would be able to have an orgasm anymore. Uh, orgasmically I've changed. I can no longer have internal, internal clitoral G-spot, whatever you want to call them, orgasms. I can still have uh, clitoral orgasms, but, um, the 
only thing that made me not feel terrified and terrible about having sex again uh, and the possibility that an orgasm would not occur is that I had already undone the myth that an orgasm was necessary. And I think that that freedom is so important for so many people, whether it's because of a health issue, whether it's because of, you know, just any, any number of reasons why orgasms don't always or don't ever happen. It's so, I don't want to say legitimizing, but I guess it, it, it makes you feel like your sex, whatever you're doing is okay if you don't feel like you have to get to a destination. It is trite to say, but the joy is the ride. Mm. (laughs) I think that was really well said. And I think uh, it's just, it's good to know that like, this is not the ultimate goal for people and how freeing it is to, to, to experience sex in so many different ways. So thank you for that. (laughs) Our next myth, ready? If I have herpes, I can't have sexual, uh, if I have herpes, I can't have, Casual sex. So um, we thought we could talk about like a discussion. Yeah. Whoever wants to kick it off. Um, well, I guess I could bring the medical aspect of it. So um, herpes, if one does have herpes, they do potentially virally shed. So they're possibly able to spread the virus even if they don't have lesions. Um, they may have lesions and their virus loads might be low. So It's a possibility that one could potentially pass on the virus to partners um, without having any outward signs. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean they can't have casual sex. It's about barrier methods because this is not one that we can get rid of. It's one that's going to be always, unfortunately, herpes is something that is there for life. So it's talking about different barrier methods and not just, you know, straight penile condom, but also female condoms because they cover more of the labia. So you have that little more protection, dental dams, if you're having oral sex, things like that. So there are certainly other options in terms of protection. It doesn't, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that one can't have casual sex, however they might define it. I'm also just going to sneak in because I'm sure Shreya has lots of stuff to say. Uh, Just quickly, I think uh, as Allison brought up, what is casual sex? Is casual sex sex where we can't talk about our needs, where we can't disclose, where we can't feel comfortable to have a discussion about barriers? If that's casual sex, I mean, it's not for everyone. I think there are lots of ways to be casual and still either broach these topics or be mindful of these topics and even engage in harm reduction if you're not discussing it. But Tria, I'm sure, has more to say about that. (laughs) Um, So because I work in... Oh, great. Something fell. I don't know what. That's okay. Um, So because I work in HIV AIDS, um, this issue around disclosure and this question around, you know, can I have casual sex usually translates to, as you know, Claire brought up, something around disclosure. So I just want to point out maybe a couple of things that are framing this question. So one is definitely the medical aspect, um, which uh, Allison, yes, uh, really thoughtfully like described, which is that, yes, you can still shed. It is skin to skin contact that passes uh, herpes in particular, but not all STIs. So um, there is that risk of, of viral shedding, right? Um, so In terms of the medical context of things, yes. And in terms of the health context of things, there is that risk. Now, interestingly, in the legal, like kind of the legal context of non-disclosure when it comes to STIs and HIV, 
In particular, HIV has had a very particular uh, kind of location in, in the legislature. And this is because of kind of it's actually through feminist organizing around broad notions of consent. So under broad notions of consent, having sex without disclosure can sometimes mean that that consent is void uh, because it's happening in a fraudulent way. And this is a really complex matter for people who are living with HIV. Um, and the reason I bring up HIV is because HIV, uh, the, the legal uh, context around HIV frames a lot of how other STIs are also treated. With HIV, the idea is that if there is a realistic chance of transmission, then disclosure has to happen. And the courts in 2012 defined a realistic chance of transmission it, as if the person does not have a suppressed viral, viral load, which is less than 200 copies of HIV per milliliter. Um, and if they, uh, so basically they have to have a suppressed um, uh, viral load and they have to use a condom. And that's the only case in which they cannot, uh, in which they have the option of not disclosing to their partners. If they do not follow that law and they are, you know, quote unquote, caught, uh, they can be charged with aggravated sexual assault, which is essentially like rape. The issue is that this law uh, is incredibly stigmatizing, actually, towards a lot of people living with HIV. And also a lot of people are unfairly prosecuted, even if they have disclosed, because there's no way to actually prove that disclosure even happened. So there's a lot of complexity to this law, but it's, it's a complexity that we have to take very seriously uh, because... There's a reason for it, right? Like a lot of feminists did some really incredible work in organizing around broad notions of consent. It's why we have things like yes means yes, right? Uh, and not just no means no. So there are some broad things to consider here. Now, in terms of what uh, what this means for herpes, first of all, there have been a few cases of herpes transmission uh, that have been tried, but herpes is very different than, than HIV. One, it's a lot more widespread. Two, HIV transmission happens in a context of uh, essentially you need to have um, like a fluid hitting uh, a mucous membrane in the context of sex. And with herpes, that's not the case. You can just be skin to skin contact. So even the method of transmission is much more, it's, it's just easier to transmit it, right? Third, um, aggravated sexual assault is really under the legal uh, definition. It's things like wounding, maiming, serious injury for life, you know, things like that. Um, and applying that to herpes really turns, really exaggerates what is happening. So I have a question for everyone in the room, actually. If you could imagine a world, right, where no STI was stigmatized or shamed, wouldn't our laws look a lot different? Wouldn't it be more about like, oh, this is like a, a weird thing to get, but it's going to be okay because actually people aren't going to treat me like shit for it. Mm -hmm. And so if we had an actual like transformative justice process in place around what it means to live with an STI, or if we have just even had a different outlook in place in terms of what it means to live with STIs in general, then this issue wouldn't really be an issue around, can I disclose? Will it be like, it wouldn't be this fearful thing. It would be actually a question of what it could be in other contexts. It could be a question of love. It could be a question of support. It could be a question of just how do we live with this? How, you know, are we going to be okay with this? It could be a question of health, mental health, sexual health, and general well-being. So that's what I kind of want to end my little mini, mini rant on. <laughs> um, cool. I don't know if other people want to address this. Yeah. I just want to say that good, kind, beautiful Lovely, amazing people get STIs every yes. single day. 
And statistically speaking, there's a lot of people in this room with an STI. And if you like casual sex and you have casual sex, have sex with the assumption that you may have an STI or your partner may have an STI and just make that the standard of how you play and how you gain consent and how you get tested and how you communicate. And there are beautiful clinicians in this world who are ready to catch you and help you get tested and go through that process, no matter what the outcome is, and help you have that experience be the best that it can be. And even if you do or do at some point get an STI, you are still good and beautiful. All right? Here, here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I don't really have really anything to add. I think I mirror what I think Claire was saying, which was basically, you know, if you can't have conversations about your sexuality and your sexual health with somebody, um, then you probably shouldn't be having sex with them. So if, if you feel like casual sex is an excuse to not have to have a conversation, um, then you probably shouldn't be having it independent of your STD status. You just, you should be able to communicate with people that you're allowing to penetrate you or that you're penetrating or that you're getting naked with it all, quite frankly. I hope you can have some sort of conversation with each other. Where is your safer sex supplies in this building? Uh, with the lubes. Okay. Oh, I have dental dams, condoms, um, and yeah, dental dams and condoms. And lube, which I think is actually safer sex supply too. It reduces the risk of tearing, so transmission's harder. Yeah. One thing that struck me when Shreya was talking uh, is just that I think that there is sort of a sliding uh, scale in terms of stigma around different STIs. Mm -hmm. So some are super stigmatized, like mm -hmm. HIV AIDS, yeah. and some are not like uh, hepatitis, hepatitis C. C. Yeah. Hepatitis C, people get inoculated when they're in elementary school. Well, it's B. hepatitis B. Yeah. Hepatitis B, yeah. But what I mean is like, it's, it's like you, people don't associate sex with it at all. Um, and then herpes, it's like if someone has a cold sore, you don't see people like, you know, openly freaking out about that. So um, just something that I noticed. Also wanted to mention that uh, there's a dating site for people who have STIs. So I thought that was kind of like a move in the right direction. Uh, one interesting thing I come across as a matchmaker sometimes is uh, people disclosing and um, or talking about disclosure or talking about concerns around potentially dating people with STIs. And that has been an interesting challenge because I'm not in the matchmaking along STI. Um, <laughs> that's not really my scene. So. I always say there's certain, like there are certain things I can match for. There are lots, I, I'm happy to hear anything. I'm happy to talk about anything. But ultimately, there are some discussions that should happen between people and not between matchmakers as go-betweens. Uh, but yeah, I, as with a lot of other very niche dating sites, I find that both interesting and also potentially stigmatizing because if, well, on the one hand, obviously having a space where you can get with somebody who's not going to make you feel a lot of stigma that's going to maybe understand that's you're just not going to have to have a complicated conversation or sometimes it's not a com complicated conversation. Um, I, I definitely understand that, but I also see sometimes by creating these little pockets where people with STIs are allowed to go and are allowed to date, it does contribute to the larger stigma of people with STIs dating anywhere. Also, the fact is you might, like it's a much smaller pool and maybe there are people with STIs and you just don't like them for other reasons. <laughs> so unfortunately, STI status is not a great um, indicator of a strong mutual match. Yeah. 
Please. Sorry, I know I've spoken a lot already, but um, just really quickly, um, if people are afraid uh, for any reason, like if they're worried that they're going to be legally prosecuted for non-disclosure, uh, there is the HIV AIDS Legal Clinic of Ontario, also known as HALCO, and they're really great. Um, so they've done a lot of work in trying to push legislation uh, in support of people living with, with HIV in particular, but also as it relates to, to other uh, STIs. Yeah, cool. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Okay, I'll just. <laughs> so, can I ask a question, actually? Are, are, is that all right? Or? You guys okay with that? Sure. sure. Um, just might be unpopular, but um, right to choose. If if a person that I'm having casual sex with knows they have an STI and they don't disclose, then they've robbed me of my right to choose whether I'm okay with it or not. And so, so I I agree with your point about stigma. I think you're absolutely right. But I do think there is, for the other person on the other side, the right to choose whether they're okay with it or not. So in this case, I actually really echo what Ducky says, which is it's the responsibility of everyone in the room to take care of their own sexual health, regardless of what you know or don't know about someone else's health status. Because keep in mind, someone else's health status, whether it's sexual health or not, is private medical information. It's not actually yours to know. So it's actually not anyone's to know. So the idea is all we can do is really educate ourselves about what we are comfortable with and Ideally, if you can open up the space to have those kinds of respectful conversations in the bedroom, where if somebody asks really politely, like, hey, is there anything I need to know about? Right. That's that's okay to ask. But also keep in mind that we're living in a world that stigmatizes people with STIs so much that, you know, they may not feel fully like they may not be ready to be fully honest with you. Right. So you are taking a risk. You're, in fact, taking a risk every time to a certain degree. But also, it's kind of like you're not, I, I would actually disagree and say you're not being robbed of the right to choose. You are just now, at least at least what I would challenge you with is that I'm telling, what I'm saying is that you may not have the right to actually know someone else's medical health information, even though we're raised in a world that tells us we do. And, and I, you know, I would like to say that a lot of people have STIs and they don't know it. Yeah. yeah. And exactly. so that's one issue you have. And for me, I'm a, I move through the world very carefully. The little bit you know of me, you know, I come from a tough place and a rough place. And for me, the point of bonding, I'm not a casual sex person. I'm a long-term relationship, well-bonded person. And I choose to bond with a person over testing. Test a person willing to test with me is a good mate. Mm -hmm. And so my husband today, we got tested together and we we're Americans. We paid the money and we waited to have sex of any kind until we both could disclose to each other and share our paperwork. And it sounds kind of funny, but it was an act of love to me to to do that with him and have him be willing to do that as a person that's like a little bit like a stray cat. It made I meant I didn't have to run under the car with this man, you know, so. Um, I would also add to that in Canada and I would check with y'all. I don't think herpes is included on like a standard STI test. So yeah, it's not reportable. It's you to get uh, like a blood test for herpes is a, a, yeah, it's private and it's a, and it's a, it's a little more complex. Um, it does cost money. So for everybody sitting and thinking, oh, well, I've never had an STI and, and I get tested and everything's fine. This, this conversation doesn't really apply to me. Uh, it does. And I don't know, like I, and, and as we sort of danced around like cold sores and, and HSV one versus HSV two in a culture where we engage in a lot of unprotected oral sex, uh, Mm -hmm. no longer really matters that much. And because a lot of people are asymptomatic and never get lesions. 
any number of us could have uh, herpes in our bodies right now and may not know and maybe have never gotten tested, even though we assume that when we get STI tests, it is included. So yeah, that adds another layer of nuance to this conversation is we're all like, okay, well, you either have herpes or you don't, and Mm -hmm. you either know or you don't. Mm, Not really, at least not in Canada, where we get it for free. We get the testing for free, but it doesn't. Well, I mean, I guess also we get it for free, but yeah, we get the testing for free and we we assume that that comes with everything. It does not. Absolutely. Pretty, okay, very uh, sophisticated conversation. Thank you. And just talking about shame and maybe as that underpinning why people aren't getting tested. They, it's like they just, they don't want to know. If they know, they don't want to share this whole culture of shame. And again, I think we're undoing that a little bit tonight. It's, I'm sure it's something that um, I was kind of talking with some of my colleagues a little, many years ago, because um, part of what we do at the Sexual Assault Center is we will offer HIV testing at the point that we see them the first time, six weeks later, and then four to six months later. So they can kind of have that wrap up. And um, we were all talking about it. It was all the staff at a staff meeting and somebody's like, it's not that big a deal. It's a chronic disease. And sort of my thing was like, okay, yes, you're going to have it for a long time. And even without treatment, you're looking at a 10 year lifespan since you get it. But there's also, you don't get the stigma that you get if you have diabetes. Like if you have HIV, there are people who potentially will no longer have you in their life. So it's a, it's something that she was talking about that it's like, if you could just imagine a world where it didn't matter, where it's like, okay, yeah, I've got HIV. Oh yeah, I've got diabetes. Oh, wow. Like that would make, that would make the conversation so much. And then they're like, let's have sex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Matchmaking, I figured yeah. it out for you. Here we go. And just to echo Allison's point about um, about being able to sort of like, would you be more ashamed to tell someone that you had an STI or or something like diabetes? Like there's this shame underpinning that and like you did this to yourself like, mm-hmm. because of your bad behavior. And going back to what Veronica said about having scripts and just having like, ability to talk about these things and uh, and being adults about it, and whether it's casual sex, whether it's a relationship, and yeah, being more open. So are we ready for our next myth? Ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Seniors are asexual. No. <laughs> <laughs> so my best customers are like the 75-year-old women. Who, I, had, I had an 83-year-old come in for a cock ring because she got a new boyfriend and he can't get it up and they got to get it on. Oh, yeah. No, seniors really like to fuck. The second highest incidence of STIs are senior populations. Yes. Syphilis a number of years ago came back in seniors. A lot of it, and a lot of it for, at least for STIs, is because nobody ever talked to them about safe sex back in the day, because that wasn't a thing. Whereas now all of a sudden, like they're just, you know, in the nursing homes getting it on and yeah, yeah, all over. And also the risk of pregnancy. They don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So no need for condoms, right? And also from a different era where uh, sexual health messaging was related to sailors. Mm-hmm. and very few other people. So if you were not a sailor, you did not need, why would you need a condom? Um, wait, so, wait, 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 wait. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Oh, that's a real thing that, um, that, that you know, sailors would use rubbers because they went from port to port, but in like- port. 
Yeah, it, literally and figuratively. <laughs> yes, figurative and also literal. Oh yes. Um. So my relationship to this is actually so I blah blah blah. I had a stroke. I say that. I, I have a storytelling night, and I think I explain every single story by caveat. I had a stroke. So caveat. I had a stroke, and um. One of the things that I, I've been doing some work in academically and, and just in terms of like speaking has been around how frustrating it was as somebody who lived in uh, inpatient rehabilitation for a long time to never have an opportunity to discuss anything related to sexuality ever, ever, ever. And there are a number of reasons for that, including uh, healthcare doesn't always super care about sex or your pleasure or what you want. Uh, Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. Uh, but a lot of it also had to do with the fact that I was on the stroke ward floor and I was about 40 to 50 years younger than the average uh, person. And so the idea is these people who are, you know, mostly like 70s, 80s, 90s, but also some people in their 50s and 60s and one person who was in her 20s, um, you know, that part of their life was over. So you don't need to have a discussion about pleasure or orgasm or, you know, how safer sex might look if you don't have use of one of your arms anymore. Um, it's it's a damaging myth that goes into so many ways. And I know we're going to talk about disability later, but even just from a healthcare perspective, erasing um, the sexuality of seniors has broad impact and from, a, from an STI perspective, for sure, as yeah, well. Absolutely. Thank you, Claire. And one thing I didn't mention at the beginning is um, how the World Health Organization actually defines sexual health. And they define it as an integral part of overall health, well-being and quality of life. So it's like, why isn't our medical system taking that into account? So any other thoughts on that? They're just people. <laughs> and they show up to medical school with their baggage mm -hmm. and their own ideas and their own history and their own family. And you're the expert on your body anywhere you go, especially in the doctor's office. And so to expect somebody to care for you better than you can care for yourself sometimes is, a, uh, is an unrealistic expectation. And then other times you just need to find a better doctor. Mm -hmm. And again, it's in your hands to take the power to, to demand the care that you deserve because there's great medical professionals out there. We have one sitting right here, you know, so... So if somebody doesn't treat you right, fuck them, fuck them, <laughs> move on, find somebody who will, but they're just people. Yeah. I know I do. Uh, I've done some work with occupational therapists, uh, rehab professionals, um, uh, physiotherapists, speech language pathologists, uh, people doing uh, various work in healthcare and also uh, people who are being uh, taught about it. So people in their masters uh, in any of those fields. And it is phenomenal the number of people who are willing to talk about it and interested, but feel whether it's because it's client-centered to let the client divulge and ask first or whether they feel like it might make somebody uncomfortable so they wait for someone else. So I wish I would have had this information when I needed it. Everyone else gets it tonight. Um, more doctors than you'd think, more medical professionals than you think are at least willing to talk about it. And if you get stonewalled, ask for somebody else on their team, ask for referrals, and they should at least be able to provide you that. 
And I think I'll just add to my seniors are definitely down to fuck. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think like I, so seniors really do make up a significant portion of my business. I'm not joking about that, but so do women who have had a few kids. They're like in their forties or fifties. Um, and their pelvic floor is just destroyed as a result of carrying, um, and aging. It happens as well. Lack of sex, uh, over time can contribute to vaginal atrophy. Um, so I just think that the thing to keep in mind is that over time, what sex means to you and what your definition of sex is might have to change. Um, and you might need to start looking at getting more medical about it. So actually getting lubes, seeking sex toys mm -hmm. that can help strengthen your pelvic floor. Um, but I think the thing to keep in mind as we age, as our bodies change, as we go through trauma, even just from childbirth, um, is that you might have to change how you look at something or what the definition is, but that doesn't mean it's less than what it was. Sometimes, right. honestly, it can be a lot more than what it was. Um, so yeah, seniors really fuck. Um, and mm -hmm. we all will over time have some sort of sex and you just need to be open to changing what that means for you mm -hmm. um, and your willingness to talk to a partner and say, honey, you can't get it up. Here's a cock ring and have those conversations and acknowledge that's just an aspect of being a human and not something to be ashamed of or worried about. Um, so sex can get better, I think, with time because you start introducing tools. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And if I can just ask a, a, to go a little bit more detail, but when you're talking about vaginal atrophy, yeah. I don't think people know very much oh, about Oh, sorry. That. Okay. So um, yeah, what can happen over time with any muscle group is if you don't use it, you lose it. So vaginal atrophy is things like vaginal dryness, um, thinning of the actual vaginal wall, which can lead some, to some irritation. So sex can become painful. Um, you can have some incontinence. So if you talk to your mom or your grandma and they giggle or they sneeze or they run, they might pee themselves a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so that's vaginal atrophy. But I mean, it's totally curable. And my, from my eight years in healthcare, administration um, and my experience just with the customers who come in here and my own anecdotal is I do not have the same positive things to say about the medical community and sexuality. I think that the medical community should be ashamed of themselves for the way that they treat women's sexuality. Um, and a lot of them especially view like a vagina as the, the tool that delivers the baby in addition to the doctor. And once the children have been born, like, what do you need your vagina for? And it is, it's like, oh, you pee yourself? Well, that's just because you had kids, like shrug. Yeah. Um, and I'm telling you, if it was men who couldn't giggle without peeing themselves, it would be a totally different conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that people take women's sexual health or vaginal health seriously at all. I think doctors are embarrassed to use the word vagina around a lot of their patients. Like, it is remarkable to me. Um, the doctors will sell things like down there to their patients as if that's supposed to actually mean something. Um, now I'm just getting ragey. Uh, but no, so, <laughs> so, so yeah, so vaginal atrophy is a thing, but there are tools like physicians might just say to your Kegels, um, that doesn't actually help and nobody really knows what they're doing, but there's great pelvic floor therapists. There's actual tools that you can use to do Kegels. A good vibrator, Kegel weights can do it, um, which is all to say that if you're in a stage in life where you are noticing a transition in sex and the way it's working for you, there's lots of hope out there and don't be embarrassed to go into a sex shop because your doctor's probably an asshole, so. <laughs> you know, I can speak to that personally. I mean, I just recently survived uh, uh, uterine cancer and had to have uh, surgical, uh, I had I experienced, a, uh, what do you call it, abrupt surgical menopause just a few months ago. And... Um, First of all, my doctor told me while I was, you know, in the stirrups one day, she said, damn, you should be teaching Kegels, you know? <laughs> I was like, I do, um, because my muscles are really strong. But I was scared to death of what anybody who goes through chemotherapy goes through menopause if they, if they have ovaries. And so I was scared to death. What does this mean? 
What will this mean to my body? Because I guess I'm, you know, now I'm completely, I can't have any hormone replacement therapy because of the risk of developing more cancer. So I went cold turkey from being thumping to no hormones whatsoever. And I was like, is this going to affect my sex life? I was still healing from surgery, could not pick myself out of bed. And I was like, I really could use some right now, you know? (laughs) And I was like, but I'm going to blow my stitches if I touch myself. I really can't do this. So if you think that menopause or hormones or ovaries or fertility are connected to desire and libido, for some people they are, but for other people, it's something a little bit deeper. And you spoke to this a little bit. The, the health and wellness I had around my self-esteem and my body and the strength in my relationship made all the difference in the world in terms of how I healed and how I moved back into having good amazing great sex so you know and that and my oncologist was like she was all up in my kegels so it was awesome you know (laughs) so there are good doctors there are good doctors and there's some that struggle Mm. um just a brief mention for two things um one, uh, what you mentioned about how doctors treat uh, women's sexual health. Yeah, I noticed this as I'm an anatomy major uh, through through McGill, and I noticed that a lot in terms of my courses and things. There was a lot of just like a like a complete lack of sensitivity or not even sensitivity, just a lack of respect, really, uh, for a lot of um, things related to to women's sexuality. Never mind aging. It was like once you're old, regardless of whether, you know, w- what gender you are, like it's like the medical profession, it really didn't even consider that as important, uh, which was really upsetting to see at a systemic level. But I agree that there are good doctors and medical professionals along the way. Um, and I also I'm just like pointing <laughs> right one and she's with us um, at ASAP something that we we really do have is that with HIV and the treatments for HIV that are that are now present a lot of people are living much much longer so that introduces new challenges in terms of what sex drive looks like for older people and for people that actually you know some of them didn't think that they would live very long at all and now they're you know they're, they're healthy they're they're doing fine but there are aspects of their lives that they are rethinking about um, so we do have support groups uh, for for people that are that are aging uh, and living with with HIV. Um, and oh, sorry, the, the last thing about the medical profession. I don't know if people have heard of this. It's called the husband stitch. Like raise your hand if you've heard of it. Okay, so this awful thing for, for those who haven't is that when uh, a woman like gives birth or when a person gives birth, essentially, um, the doctor sometimes sew, sew them up like too tight. too tight and they add an extra stitch. Why? For the husband's pleasure. <gasps> supposedly for re and it so it's painful and it's not kind and it's completely unnecessary and yeah it's called the husband stitch and it fucking sucks so there you go more hurtful Damn. harmful bullshit wow. dropping knowledge Fun. yeah dropping knowledge well i thought we'd uh, move move away from the physiological sorry uh, for for a moment we'll come we'll come back um i want to talk about uh sex positive place um so i want to talk about sex clubs and uh, one of the myths around sex clubs being you should only go to a sex club if you plan to participate in sexual activity while other, with others while you're there. No. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, I view sex clubs... I don't even view sex clubs as a place for sex. I view sex... I mean, and it can be, and yay. Um, but I really view it as a place to just kind of gather with like-minded people in a progressive atmosphere, um, 
that's fairly generally non-judgmental, um, where you'll meet some really interesting, really diverse people. I feel like everybody thinks that people at sex clubs are like really beautiful, supermodel type young people that are like jet setters. And um, part of my business planning was a year of just like sex, not like me having it. Um, Sadly, but me like going to <laughs> going to sex clubs and going to orgies and all these different things just to kind of see like what's happening in the sex lives of people. Um, and no, it's like people off the street. It's it's the people that are at the supermarket or the people at the club. Um, and you can go and you can have interesting conversations and you can totally have sex um, if you want to. But some people just want you there to watch them and that's okay. And some people just want to go to watch and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to our discussion of, okay, well, what is sex and what is casual sex? And all of these things can mean so much. Um, I'm a big fan of short bus for anybody who's seen it. And the the quintessential quote, uh, voyeurism is participation. If we're talking about sex and we're removing it from the idea that sex needs to be penetrative and with another person and, you know, leading to an orgasm and all of that. Yeah. Okay. That's one thing. But if we're talking about sex in a more broad way, which I think is useful and more inclined to pleasure and comfort, voyeurism absolutely can be included in that. But also that that sort of like social space can can be non-sexual even from a voyeuristic perspective. So it's it's nice to not only think about the fact that it can be non-sexual, but also it can be sexual and sex doesn't mean that you meet a stranger and and then you have, you know, penetrative sex with them. It can mean any number of things, including just enjoying the surroundings. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, oh, yes, go ahead. Do you want to add to that? And if you don't want to go, you just don't have to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, too. <laughs> just to make it clear. <laughs> um, so our next myth is about relationships. So we're talking about open relationships. So myth. So an open relationship means you can sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, without consulting your partner. <laughs> Free for all. Yeah. I never do that. It can. There are definitely people who do work that way. And thumbs up if that's your thing. But it should never be your thing without careful consideration, multiple conversations, and, and an ongoing dialogue where things can change at any moment. Open relationships can mean basically anything on the slightly opener end of the spectrum. And I, I, one of my favorite things to like teach and talk about is actually the concept of intentional monogamy, which is that ultimately from open to, or like polyamorous or any, whatever word you want to use to monogamous, it's actually a spectrum. And theoretically you can identify with either or neither, but the same, an, an ideal open relationship involves a lot of conversation and an ongoing open dialogue. And ideally a monogamous relationship should also <laughs> involve those things. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. Um, I think one thing that I want to point out is that, uh, so there was a really interesting article that was circulating a while ago on how, um, like, 
polyamory and open relationships were, are largely white. And this is like, this is an actual phenomenon. They are largely white and there are really complex reasons for this. Um, it doesn't mean that poly is, is like, you know, somehow oppressive in and of itself. I don't think it is. I think what's happening is that there is a concentration of cultural capital, uh, in, in racist ways. Like it happens, right. Um, a lot of my friends of color and I noticed this at McGill. It was like, you know, I was like, okay, it's, it's going to happen. I'm going to like meet someone like high school, like fuck high school, but like, I'm going to meet someone at like McGill. And like, I didn't, I would go to the same parties. I would go to the same, whatever. And it was just like not being viewed initially, even as like, like a, a partner that was worthy of desire, even in like a monogamous context. And so then I think entering into poly relationships or monogamous relationships, either way, it needs to happen where there's like an even keel of respect. So my introduction to polyamory was brutal as it is for like a lot of women of color, unfortunately, because especially if they're in very anti-oppressive spaces, there is this uh, sometimes covert, sometimes overt implication that uh, sex positivity means like you should just want to have sex all the time, no matter what, um, no matter what that kind of sex is. And that if you say no, that you're somehow sex negative. So that that's happened a lot on the ground. Um, and what, what, it, what happened was that a lot of uh, women of color friends that I that I had would be in these uh, m these polyamorous relationships with white guys who were sleeping with everyone, and that's fine. Except it wasn't fine because there wasn't a lot of communication with these women of uh, color who felt that essentially they had to be a part of that dynamic, or they would lose the guy, and they would lose the love, they would lose the intimacy. And if they tried to raise their concerns, it turned into you're just not sex positive, you're just jealous, you're just this, and it's like. It's this, uh, and I think there's a lot of really good literature coming out now about how like, hey, jealousy happens in all kinds of relationships, including poly. It's about how we manage that. But also there needs to be a lot more dialogue on like racism in how people are really being valued. Uh, and if people are being valued equally um, in in these, uh, in, 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 any, in any kind of relationship actually, because I've also seen it. So for me, I when I saw this happen in poly relationships, I I was like, I'm gonna just date like brown people and be monogamous. And, and you know, I was like, brown guys are so much better. No, <laughs> like, and that's not how life works. And I was, you know, it, that was also a reality check. It's just like, people are people. There are wider systemic um, reasons why people are sometimes viewed as undesirable or, or are treated with lack of respect, but it's not going to change just by cutting off. Like I cut off an entire demographic and I was like, this will fix, fix my like relationship life. No, it didn't. So it's more about like intentionality and communication and really building that, that level of like trust and respect for, for one another. Anyway, I don't remember what the question was now, but I'm done <laughs> talking. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Rhea. I think also some of this also has to do with class yes. and value and worth. And so as a person who came of poverty, who had already experienced a lot of shame based on other people's ideas of how I'd lived my life. Um, polyamory and open relationships do, do not feel safe to me. And I keep coming around to that. Uh, I've, I've just have never been able to get into it because frankly, I need a shitload of respect and a lot of love. And I haven't found a person who could balance my needs with uh, an open relationship or polyamory. And like everything I say, uh, you know, a person should do exactly what feels good to them and is consensual with their partner, but it's not for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also just uh, adding to Shreya's point, there's an amazing book that came out recently uh, by Kevin Patterson called Love's Not Colorblind, which is about race and polyamory. And it's like a really good read. It's not 
super academic. It's super nerdy and cultural referency <laughs> if you're into that, but it's just, there's more, there's more discussion about that now, but it is, this book is a really good start if anybody is interested. Awesome. I don't know if I have anything else to add. <laughs> <laughs> I think we covered it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting just because I, I had a, oh, yeah. I had a guest on my show um, talk about Polly and she was just talking about how it's heavily stigmatized and just how people who are, are practicing Polly often um, are closeted kind of about it and um, just sort of like challenges about having kids and um, discrimination from landlords and things like that. So... Well, we can take a break, Rebecca. You want to take a break? Yeah, yeah. there's lots of movements right to happen in the crowds. Yeah, let's take a break. Yeah. We'll reconvene in, in five? Yeah. In five minutes. I know a lot of people are standing. Uh, another half an hour. And it's going to be like Q&A. We're going to do, I think, one, we're gonna do one more bit and then Q&A, I think. Oh, Veronica started talking about like vaginal atrophy. I'm like, I'm gonna do my Pilates now. <laughs> That's right. Must be. Pilates twice a week. <laughs> okay, so Shannon's gonna pull a couple raffle tickets for these great solo prizes. That first one. Do the little one first. Ducky, you want to intro this pleasure product? Um, bumpy, rumbly. <laughs> G-spotting addiction. <laughs> it's called Solar Q. Um, we have it right here for sale. If you decide you want to have one, there's a sample out as well. Um, this is the brand MeetSola.com, and, and uh, Zanuki can get you whatever you need from Meet Sola. So um, this one is just a, it's a beautiful, luxurious, sensual uh, performer. Ooh, ooh. Who's gonna get it? All right, okay. Everyone got their tickets out? I lost mine, so if nobody wants that, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know. It's smart. You All right, two, four, six, two, zero, seven, zero. Me! Oh. And we don't have this one for sale today, but I'm sure Veronica could get you it if you needed it, because oh, she can get you what you need. Um, so this is a pleasure wand. It's The box is bigger than the product. The product is this size. It, it's, again, a really strong, beautiful body massager, but also amazing orgasm inducer. It has a long, lightweight handle, so if you don't have a lot of mobility, it's a beautiful piece for that. If you have a big body or an injured body or a pregnant body or an injured back, or this is a beautiful product for that. It also has a flat handle, so you can, you can rope it up against the pelvis and has a remote control so you can stand back 40 feet and say, how you doing over there? <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I'm really fond of this beautiful piece. Again, it's Meet Sola, and who's going to win this, baby? <laughs> Wait, you're going to have to call in sick to work tomorrow. <laughs> All right, two, four, six, two, zero, seven, seven. Well, they leave? They really killed it. So <laughs> <laughs> a few people left. Yeah, that was yeah, the next one. Okay. So they all started with two, four, and six. Six, six. Right. I'm here. Whatever that is. Two, zero, eight, oh. seven. Two, seven. 
Like, you know, this is why I never leave an event early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sad vibratorless person is out there. Yeah. I was like, I wish I had a vibrator. <laughs> All right. The remote control. Next step. 2060. Oh. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. Third time's the charm. All right, guys, and let's uh, let's get back to the talk of Hudson. All right. Yeah. All right. So we have 30 minutes to go. And um, <laughs> And we are going to move into our Q&A section. So um, we wanted to open it up to the audience to ask, to pose any questions that you might have. And so when you ask your question, um, please state who you would like to direct your question to. And uh, yeah, and that's and keep your question fairly brief. Thanks. Toronto, they're always slow. Thank you. <laughs> <That's a question. laughs> um, how may I how might I be able to offer support for a friend who is going through um uh sort of a divorce that involves um, domestic violence? That's a really good question. Um so I would I would think that one one way of supporting your friend would just be to listen to whatever they have to say without judgment. Um, sometimes in, in talking to some of my my clients that I deal with at work, um, they'll they'll describe to me some of the, the things that their friends have said, like, oh, well, it was about time you left them and why the hell did you stay with them? And it's not supportive and helpful uh, thinking about it from a cycle of, the wheel of violence and the cycle of violence and how long it actually takes somebody to act to really get out of those relationships. So one of the biggest things is supporting them and just listening and just being there, whatever they need. I concur. Just shut the fuck up and listen. Just, just listen. Just open yourself up and sit back and listen. Oftentimes they have all the answers and they are most certainly the expert on their situation. You hear me say that over and over again, but especially somebody who's being injured or abused is the expert in their situation. And um, it is easy to second guess, or sometimes they're displaying illogical behavior. There is really no such thing. There is logic to that person. It's illogical just to you because you haven't experienced it. So to exactly what you said, listen and support and believe that they know what they're doing because the truth is, that's the very hardest point in their experience. That's the hard, that more people get injured, hurt, and murdered when after they leave. And that's why they stay there. So when we question why they stay, we're questioning an expert who knows what they're doing. They may be safer at that moment in that relationship than they are when they step away. So, you know, to support and be 100% and they may fall apart and be ready to pick them up. But the best thing is, like you said, just to listen. Yeah. Well, I think I would add to that, um, it kind of depends on your friend. Like I know personally with me, when I'm going through a hard time, I don't like to ask for help from people. Like I, and if people are just like, hey, do you want to talk? I'll just be like, no, that's okay. Um, the people that help me in my life are the people who can identify my needs. And I feel like if somebody's, not the, like I'm saying like somebody should know, but I just mean like um, somebody who knows me well enough to know I don't you know, feed myself well when I'm really stressed out and who will just show up with food. Mm -hmm. um, or if somebody's leaving a domestic violence situation, they're probably without 
like basic needs. Like they probably don't have a couch, right? So if you can even be um, the person who's managing that for them and just saying, I'm going to do this for you. Is there anything in particular you'd like me to add to it? So I'm going to get you a couch. Like what color do you want? Um, Because they're probably so overwhelmed that even thinking of asking for things and they probably have no self-esteem left. um, So even feeling like it's okay for them to ask for things is probably not a place that they're at. So take the lead, take the initiative, see what needs to get done and just kind of do it. Um, Or at least say like, I I want to do this for you. Is that okay? Something, but don't just generally be like, I'm here if you need me. Um, Because they're probably not going to ask no matter how much they need you. Mm. On average, of course, there's exceptions. Mm. Another thing, um, and this is sort of from from a more broad perspective is doing, I would say like what Veronica said, and, and also offering options. So like, and this is this is something that I know is used a lot for people who are grieving or people who are going through health crises where you give a couple options like I'd like to help you get a couch or like do you want me to come over and we can just talk for a while or like do you want to just stay in my place or is there anything else that I can do because I think listening is number one but there it's absolutely true that not not everybody feels comfortable doing that also are potentially exhausted and as much as you want to support your friend, you might not be the only person and they might be fielding like 25 people who are all Facebook messaging them and it's exhausting. So giving tangible options and and multiple options and then being able to ask what they want and accept if what they want is uh, a little time. Because I think it can feel like you just you just want to help so badly and you just want to help and you can get in somebody's um, way sometimes because especially in, in the situation where you're dealing with uh, domestic violence, there are a lot of things to deal with internally and not everybody processes with other people and not everybody wants to process while also dealing with someone else's feelings about their feelings. Thank you, everyone. I think that's a really comprehensive uh, response. I wanted to actually move, we, we opened a forum for people to ask anonymous questions prior to the panel. So we have a list of those questions here. So I just wanted to move it over to one of those. So um, I'm a person of color, but almost all my sexual partners have been white. Have I been fetishizing a certain type of partner? Uh, I'll take this one. <laughs> so, um, so this is like a really interesting question because normally, so usually when I've heard this question around fetishization, it's usually the other way around. Like, oh, like, you know, my white partner is like fetishizing me. All of their partners have been like women of color and like, you know, what is like, what are they doing? So this is an interesting inversion of that. And I think it's one that deserves uh, exploration. So the answer is no one can answer that for a person only they can answer that themselves. However, if at any point you notice that there is a consistent pattern in like a racial demographic that someone is seeking out, like, yeah, there's a risk that you are drawn to a particular race rather than qualities of a person. And the, the qualities of a race is, is nothing. Like that's just a constructed reality, right? So my, my brief answer is yes, very possibly, but also that you're not a bad person for it. And there's a lot of things in our culture that prioritize like white people as, uh, as attractive, as, um, as people that we want to be with, as people that we want to be sometimes. Like growing up, my, like my type was like Dawson from Dawson's Creek. That's an embarrassing <laughs> fact. Um, and thankfully it changed. But for a long time, yeah, I was obsessed with like dating white guys and then it was like white girls. And then it was like just white people, but it was very centered on whiteness in a really 
in, in a really damaging way. Um, and then I think it's like, yeah, it's definitely something that people should, should reflect on because the unfortunate reality of how power dynamics play out is that when a white person fetishizes a person of color, a person, the person of color is usually harmed, but when a person of color fetishizes white people, it's still the person of color that's usually harmed because they're, you know, they're used or rejected or whatever. Uh, and also because fetishizing is never, nobody wants to be an object of desire. Right. So like I've also had, for example, like white people respond to that kind of fetishizing gaze from me uh, in my past, hopefully, thank God, uh, in like really in really normal ways. Like they're just like, stop doing that. Like, I'm not that special. Why do you think I'm that special? Like, it's weird. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, yeah, there's some careful like inner self-exploration work that can be done around that uh, that can like break the fetishizing gaze away. And then hopefully, you know, you can date whoever you want of any race, of any background without that kind of attachment. Mm. Yeah. Oh, so just to clarify, so you don't think that there are people who embrace the the fetish that they might be? So this is like a, a complex question around what a fetish is or what an attachment is or what, um, what it may mean, right? I think in certain contexts like kink, there are like ways in which you can play with, uh, with attachments of various kinds. Uh, but I do think that like, it's, uh, done with a lot of care. It's done with a lot of sincerity and it's limited in scope to that particular act, right. Or to that particular moment. I think it becomes a dangerous thing when the entire relationship is based on a fetish. Mm. Yeah. Important. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Wants to. Nope. Okay. (laughs) Anybody from the audience? Yes. I'd love to hear someone talk um, about the myth that um, like using sex toys or overusing sex toys can be damaging for your clit or like you can desensitize yourself or like this myth that overusing can like harm your sex life in the long run. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So you touched on a lot of different things. Um, So no, that's okay. Um, I mean, it's true that if you use a vibrator on your clit, it can desensitize, but that's like a temporary thing that's going to clear up in like an hour after you stop. (laughs) So like that is a myth that is true, but with exceptions to it. Um, But now like if you look at uh, women, if you look at the actual like medical literature on women who orgasm and women who don't orgasm, one of the most consistent findings um, of women who do orgasm is that they also masturbate. So, and masturbation, um, using sex toys, right? You orgasm faster than you probably are going to with a partner. Um, so really it's like guaranteeing future orgasms, but like efficiently. So, um, so you do like people who use sex toys do tend to have better sex lives. Part of that might just be because people use sex toys are also much more open and comfortable and self-confident and that also affects quality of sex. Um, but no, like you're, you are, you're, if you're using them vaginally, it will strengthen your pelvic floor. Um, so it actually makes you fitter to use sex toys. It really does. And to be penetrated. Um, and also just using sex toys and masturbating helps you understand what you like, how you like it, how long you like it, what areas you like it in for how long. Um, all things that can take a lot of time with a partner and that a lot of people are worried about having to guide a partner to that degree of little to the left, now to the right. Um, so if you can kind of guide yourself and move it around and know and communicate 
again, kind of efficiently, um, it makes for better sex for everybody. So no, sex toys are amazing. Like the stigma, I don't know where it comes from, but it's bullshit. Like they are amazing tools. They're not gross looking anymore. They're not toxic anymore. I mean, they still, and if you, if you like gross looking toys, I don't judge, but I'm just saying there's some really pretty toys for you to, to use on your body. The other thing is whenever these types of conversations come up and I know we keep coming back to like, what is sex? What does sex mean? It, it's kind of hinting at this idea that there is like an authentic way to have sex and there, and that is a better way. And also it speaks to a partner's, uh, concern about not measuring up, whether that is in terms of, you know, actual size or whether that's in terms of ability. It assumes that the best sex is the sex you have where your partner gives you an orgasm and that creates so much pressure and is not always possible and also just prioritizes this sort of, whether it's heteronormative or, you know, at least like very reductive idea of what sex is that moves us away from sex is whatever you enjoy that gives you pleasure. And if a vibrator helps with that, if a cock ring helps with that, if any number of things help with that, thumbs up, great. And ultimately when these questions come up, a message that hopefully gets sent is if your partner is really not okay with you using sex toys, that's a conversation that needs to be had. You need to figure out why that is and you need to ultimately stand up for your pleasure. Quotable. Something else that I often think about when people are talking about stuff like this is where are all the discussions that jerking off makes guys not come? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I think it's a myth, not necessarily, as Veronica was saying, like there are some things that you can do to, you know, for a time limited period of time, irritate your clitoris. But I think it's a lot of the more paternalistic world that we live in where women's sexuality in, you know, spaces wonderfully outside of this magical many walls that I can't actually count right now. Um, (laughs) It's still seen as property of men. Um, So no, 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 you can't do that to yourself because I have to do it to you. Um, So that's what I often think about that. This is not, you know, these are, that's, you know, a myth with maybe that tiny bit of truth, but more coming from a place that's not thinking about the medical irritation aspect, but like Mm. who's sexual, who's, who, sorry, now I'm getting all tongue tied. Um, (laughs) To whom does one's sexuality belong? Yeah, yeah. nice point. Absolutely. Uh, another, uh, well, something I was just thinking about when, when you were talking was about um, the husband stitch. Yeah. And just something that uh, you hear people say like, oh, like, using like a giant dildo is going to loosen you up. And this idea about looseness, tightness, better, worse, and just going, linking back to some of our earlier conversation. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um. That's not true. Yeah. So going back to our list, another myth we uh, are going to be addressing is that people with disabilities or chronic illness can't have sex. That's what they'd have you believe. (laughs) Think of how many... How many sexual images, you know, films, porn you've seen? How many of those involved fun, happy, disabled folks having sex? How many times have you seen disabled people shown as desirable as objects of affection and care and and desire? Never? Probably. 
yeah, yeah. And 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 then we get into the whole discussion of of people who do not have disabilities portraying people with disabilities. That's another discussion for another day. But um, there is very little precedent and um, disabled folks are infantilized. There is a tremendous history in this country dating back to even the 80s of eugenics, um, of people being forced sterilized because they're disabled, because they're chronically ill. And ultimately that is still pervasive in the medical community, that if people see you as undesirable to procreate, we know what people think about women's sexuality, how it's only important if you can have babies. So if people don't think you should have babies for whatever reason, including any aspect of their ableism, you don't get a say in your sexual health. Um, Often people with disabilities who uh, acquire disabilities early on may not get sexual education at all because where does that usually happen? Gym class. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not in gym class, if you are elsewhere, you don't get that education. And even if you do, you don't learn how to use safer sex products and, and how to gain pleasure if your body is not normative and they're only, if they're explaining any of that at all, it's only on able bodies. So... From the jump, we get these assumptions and they absolutely carry through, but people with disabilities can have amazing sex lives. There's um, a book called The uh, Ultimate Guide to Sex and Disability written by three Torontonians, uh, a wonderful, important book. It's on Audible, it's accessible, and it's really one of the only books about sex and disability. So if you think of how many books there are about giving blowjobs <laughs> and then how many books there are about having sex with any kind of disability or chronic illness, very, very few. So all this to say, my rage, um, which is clear, is that there's there are so many barriers to all sorts of things when you have a disability, but uh, sex is one of the, I, I guess, maybe most stigmatized and... It's just not true. Yeah. Claire, thank you for that. And I just wanted to highlight if anyone, has anyone here heard of the Feminist Porn Awards? Or I think they've turned yeah. into the Toronto International Porn, porn Festival? Festival. Yes. And I really want to highlight as, as a really fun event that happens, it's, it's back now, it was on hiatus for a bit, but it does celebrate and give awards to um, films that celebrate uh, people with disabilities having sex. So pretty great. I'll just try to be brief, but this ties so uh, essentially to living with HIV. Um, and in terms of people that we support, like we often in the mainstream really uh, don't think about HIV as an issue of love or an issue of intimacy or an issue of like how we view people as desirable as partners and as romantic partners. So like, honestly, for, for people who are not in, in that sector or who don't think about this regularly, if you can, like, if after this event, you can just go home and think about you know, what would it be like if my partner had HIV? What would it be like if I did? How would I want to be supported? How would I want to support my partner? What if someone else that I meet does eventually have that? And try to really work through the stigma around that. And it's going to be a long process, but it's something that I think we should all learn uh, to do because often there is, especially with HIV, there's this idea that, you know, there's this like fear that people are going to catch it and, you know, to really work through that fear and just be like, what do I want to protect myself from? Is it actually an STI? which is completely, now nowadays it's not curable, but it's still treatable uh, and with very, very good uh, if like you know effects in terms of like having a, a regular lifespan and just a high quality of life. So is it that I'm scared of getting an STI or is it that I'm scared of the stigma 
that comes with it. Um, and I think that's a, just a good place uh, to start. It is a chronic illness, so people do live with it. Um, and it's tied so intimately to, to sexuality. And I think we forget that sometimes. Thank you. I like to assume everybody is whole, sexually whole. You know, every single person. There's, uh, I'm sure, quite a few people in this room with disabilities and different abilities. And um, that's just been what I, you know, because also when you have a disability, people sometimes ask really inappropriate questions. Mm -hmm. Fuck those questions. Just assume the person in front of you, if they're alive, that they're sexually whole. So, you know, and if you today don't live with a disability, you probably will at some point in your life. Studies show that at some point in every man's life, he will have an issue with his erection. And an erect penis does not make a person whole, you know? So wholeness is uh, relative. And just assume that every person you meet at any age, you know, from you from toddler up has some sensibility in their body and some ownership of their body and that they are whole. And that will help you move through the world and respect people um, in, a, in, in the best way. Yes. I just think that about beyond the disability, there's the whole issue of um, sex and image. And, um, you know, if you look at what's portrayed as the perfect um, shape to be men or women, it's certainly not something we most of us can ever get to. Um, no, you are it. No, but... <laughs> you are all perfect. <laughs> You can say the same thing with disabilities, but it's still nonetheless the uh, kind of um, image or fantasy that uh, I even just looking at the store pictures, right? Everybody's very, very like thin, and uh, you don't see any any uh, variance. It's always very similar type of body that is portrayed as being for men too. But um, so I think that's an issue. And also, especially with younger people, the um, expectation, because porn is so prevalent, mm. that um, I'm thinking here from my children at university, that uh, the expectation now from particularly uh, men, for women, is that they have to look somehow uh, as good as these quartiles mm. or you know they have to groom and they have to all these things that mm. I don't think were there before the internet was so was so wide, widely available mm. mm -hmm. raises good interesting questions about okay uh, realistic, unrealistic expectations uh, that you're saying that pornography conjures or the general media we see. So does anyone want to comment on that? I mean, I think speaking to porn specifically, we as a culture have terrible media literacy in general. And that is so much worse when it comes to porn, because at least with media literacy, when we're thinking about the ideal body that we've seen, like, you know, on Sports Illustrated or things like that, there is some sort of dialogue. There is some sort of response in our culture where 
we're not tremendously body positive, but at least we can think about body positive ideas when when we're confronted with these images. At least there's some, you know, relationship to something we've talked about at, at some time. Whereas with porn, because sex is shrouded in mystery, we don't get to have that conversation at all. And it's about aesthetics, but it's also about performance. And that links back to disability, that sex is, oh, we keep talking about this, sex is one kind of thing and it's power thrusting or it's like, this athletic form of fairly aggressive penetration. And and so to do that, your body has to look a certain way and has to perform a certain way. And only by, A, just in general, having better media literacy in schools and, and a wider array of images that are considered desirable in media, in stores, in in all over the place, uh, I think this does come back to sex ed and why if you're having pleasure-based sex ed that acknowledges the current, the current sexual climate, we have to have discussions about porn. And the thing is, it doesn't mean that porn is bad. Even mainstream porn, even porn that is super heteronormative, even porn that engages in sexual scripts and tropes that are not super conducive to great sex in life. Um, that's fine because we don't learn how to, and this is like, everyone says this when they talk about porn, we don't learn how to drive from the Fast and the Furious. Mm. But we don't have driver's ad for sex, really. Yeah. It's not the same. It, it does not exist in the same realistic sphere. Mm. Whereas the, any other way you're going to learn about something in life, you will have something accessible that exists in the real world. If we never learn what that red means stop and green means go, and then we went out on the road, it would be a bad scene. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we want to be respectful of your time and we're coming to an end of this wonderful, glorious panel. And I, I have so many people that I want to just take a moment to thank. First, I want to thank uh, Megan for organizing this event and being incredibly organized. For Shada, who took it upon herself to uh, kind of quell some of her curiosity on her road to fundraising for an amazing cause. So thank you so much. Um, Adam from Toronto Sound was <laughs> invaluable and so really wonderful to work with. And finally, uh, an epic uh, gamut of panelists, in my view, with just bringing such a wide range of experiences and expertise. So um, we're so we're so grateful for your feedback and your thoughts. Thanks. So great. Thank you. And uh, this, uh, so this will be posted on Sex Ed Before Bed, which you can find on uh, iTunes, on Spotify, and uh, on my website, sexedbeforebed.com. So if, you're, if you want to hearken back to this and like, remember something, then it'll, it should be posted in the next month. So um, anything final you guys wanted to say? I just have a few resources if people are interested, but they're very like, they're not as fun as what is in the rest of the store. They're just pamphlets. <laughs> yeah. Come find me on Instagram. Yes. Yeah. And I like you. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, Veronica has kindly op- kept her shop open extra late for us for uh, shopping. So please take uh, the next uh, half an hour to poke around and, uh, and feel free to ask our panelists questions so they'll be hanging around for a little bit afterwards. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. You did great. Thank you, Ducky. I'm returning. This is great. Oh.